0: This is the InFocus podcast from The Hindu.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hindu's InFocus podcast. I'm Anant Krishnan, your host for today. After Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said his country will always be there to defend the right of peaceful protest... The first world leader to voice his views on the farmers' protests in Delhi, India, slammed his remarks as ill-formed and unwarranted. Reports then said the peeve over Canada's interference. External Affairs Minister Jaishankar would skip a Canada-led virtual meeting on COVID-19. Meanwhile, on the day India protested Canada's interference in internal affairs, Defence Minister Rajnath Singh said countries who can neither make their own roads nor walk on it nor trade themselves become like India's neighbours in a thinly veiled description of the state of internal affairs across the border in Pakistan? Is this trend of interventionism and commenting on internal affairs of others on the rise? And is the principle of non-intervention in international affairs a relic of the past that needs revisiting, when every country that complains of interference is perhaps doing the same thing, and is doing so justified in the pursuit of national interest? Helping us make sense of these questions today, Srinath Raghavan, a professor at Ashoka University and a senior fellow at Carnegie, India, and the author of the excellent book, The Most Dangerous Place, A History of the United States in South Asia, and Swasini Haider, the national editor and diplomatic affairs editor of The Hindu. Thank you both so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Anand.
0: Thanks, Anand. Good to be here.
1: So asni if I can get you to weigh in on this very strange India-Canada spat, I think if you expected the kind of diplomatic problems India would have in 2020, I think Canada would be lowest on the list. So what explains this reaction from India and do you think it's expected and justified?
2: You know, Anand, there are so many parts to this that need to be unpackaged, uh, particularly when it comes to ties between India and Canada, which have been driven, you know, for years. India boycotted Canada because of uh, the perception that Canada was uh, was uh, uh, promoting, turning a blind eye to activities of Khalistani groups there, right. especially after uh, the, the the bombing of the Air India plane, um, uh, and uh, you know, we we uh, over the Kanishka we saw a, a real strain in the ties between the two countries. Uh, so that's kind of the background. What Mr. Trudeau says is on its own sounds quite ridiculous because uh, to, to uh, support peaceful protests around the world means you know, Canada would have to be monitoring 192 countries and comment on peaceful protests uh, and, you know, uh, uh, analyze and and evaluate uh, what kind of protests they're seeing around the world. Clearly, Canada made a point of um, talking about the protests from uh, particularly, uh, specifically, Punjabi farmers that have a large uh, uh, number of uh, people amongst the diaspora. Uh, and, And Trudeau was quite specific when he said that Uh, You know, when he referred to Sikh members of his cabinet who had been particularly wired, they'd also made statements. Um, So if you were to look at the reasons for this broadly, uh, uh, more than just what's going on between India and Canada and and the strain over in ties that we've seen over several years, uh, I think the first is the globalization of everything. Uh, The fact that a protest on the outskirts of Delhi will attract international headlines is really part of the globalization of media. Everybody's watching everything. The second is this new idea for politicians worldwide. And we see it not just in Canada. We see it around the world uh, where uh, a sort of hyper-nationalism comes attached with Uh, pandering to domestic constituencies over foreign policy concerns. Uh, So in India, for example, you see the government speaking about specific concerns to domestic constituencies um, over any foreign policy, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, any sort of downside from foreign policy. We saw it with the uh, Citizenship Amendment Act or the treatment of Bangladeshi. Uh, uh, when we heard uh, the Home Minister refer to Bangladeshi refugees or immigrants in India as termites, it was putting domestic constituencies over foreign policy uh, agendas. And the third, I think, what we're seeing is the double-edged sword uh, uh, version of the diaspora, that if there is a diaspora in, uh, in, in, uh, that India uh, relates to around the world, That diaspora can also become a bit of an albatross when it takes an extra concern in affairs inside India. So I think that there is one component to it, which is a regular sort of, you know, India, Canada strain over the issue of Punjab and Khalistan. Uh, And I think there is a larger, you know, geopolitical uh, aspect to it as well. And we see it in India more closely, perhaps, but we see it around the world.
1: No, that's quite fascinating, Asni I think there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. But what really stood out for me was the point that you made, which I think really hits the nail on the head, that around the world, you're seeing a, a prioritization of domestic politics and addressing domestic constituencies, which frankly, that's, that was what Trudeau was doing. It was not an ethical or moral objective, I would argue. And you're seeing that elsewhere in the China-Australia's path recently, uh, where you had Australia comment about Hong Kong and then China bring up, Australian alleged war crimes in Afghanistan. So that seems to be the trend. Now, Srinath, going back in history a little bit, where did this come about? This idea that not commenting about the internal affairs of others was something sacrosanct. It was something obviously embraced by India and China in the 50s as well, which is perhaps understandable right in the wake of the colonial experiences. But can you walk us through how this became such an important tenet and something that we hear repeated so often, whether from Delhi or from Beijing?
0: That's a good question, Anand. And I think uh, perhaps the best starting point in terms of trying to understand where contemporary sort of attitudes towards these issues are shaped, uh, it's best to go to the founding of the United Nations itself because the UN Charter has this kind of dichotomy built into it. On the one hand, the UN Charter privileges the sovereignty of its member states, which it explicitly states is also about not interfering in internal affairs of other countries. But at the same time, the UN Charter also talks about universal human rights. And the charter was soon followed by a universal declaration of human rights. So what this meant is that from the beginning, there has been a bit of tension on the principles on which international affairs are going to be organized. Whether uh, sovereignty and non-interference should take precedence over human rights and so on has always been a question, so to speak. And frankly, there is no theoretical resolution to this question. The only way in which human rights and other issues have Come to the fore, and that too has been a development, I would say, only since the 1970s, uh, is when there are massive violations of human rights. So this idea that countries will not comment on activities in someone else's territory is is not really something which you can say has been a long-lasting principle. You would do it out of diplomatic prudence, you would do it out of other kinds of considerations. For instance, you know, as you mentioned, for many of the newly decolonizing countries after the Second World War uh what came to be called the third world the principle of non-interference was very important because of their colonial legacy of continuous uh intervention by external actors in internal affairs and that's really the background also to uh, you know why countries like india and china uh, back in the early 1950s when they are sort of coming together and signing their first agreement on tibet uh actually have this preamble which is called the Five Principles of Peaceful Coexistence, or the Panchashila, which basically talks uh, about non-interference as one of the very important things. Non-interference is also very important in the context of the countries which came together in the Bandung Conference. But that was, as you are rightly saying, because of the colonial overhang and so on. Contemporary discussions are more about how much should human rights be privileged in the context of international politics. And there, I think it's fair to say that this discourse is much more recent this discourse begins in the 1970s with organizations like amnesty which are struggling for rights of uh, you know prisoners and so on and only since the end of the cold war in the 1990s has human rights really come to take a significantly important place in international politics and that is totally related to the broader phenomenon of globalization starting around the same period which as suhasini pointed out is very much there so human rights and globalization together mean that there are new kinds of challenges for uh, discourse around state sovereignty, which has led to all other kinds of things. But I still feel a lot of that discussion tends to be centered on gross abuses. It's it's not usually about ordinary day-to-day happenings or protests and the way that protests are being dealt with, unless and until the scale of the crackdown is seen to be very massive. So in the context of what Prime Minister uh, Trudeau was saying, it is, it's as it, it is as you were saying, driven much more by domestic political uh, considerations, which will always be there. There's no getting away from it.
1: Before we come to the more recent changes in discourse on human rights, on intervention, on the basis of human rights violations and responsibility to protect and the like, uh, Srinath, the irony, of course, is that even if India and China had this sort of very legitimate post-colonial reaction, in many ways, the two new states embraced some other colonial ideas in the way they treated their immediate neighborhood in the case of India and, of course, in the case of China as well, if you look at Tibet as an example. So looking at India's own history, right from 1947, Uh, is it consistent in terms of this idea uh, that we now say is a a big pillar of our foreign policy or has it been pick and choose as we see fit? No,
0: again, I think it's very much been a case of, uh, you know, assuming that there are certain situations where not just interference but very active taking stances on internal issues does matter. And I'll give you an example, which I think a lot of people who are supporters of human rights will actually sort of immediately recognize, which is the whole question of apartheid. I mean, when South Africa went down the truth, India was one of the first countries to, in the third world particularly, take a very strong stance. And that was a position which persisted right through, through the 1980s. I mean, I, I recall when Rajiv Gandhi went to London to attend a Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. You know, He gave a very, very tough statement, slamming, the British government, for diluting the anti-apartheid kind of uh, front, so to speak. Now, this was done by an Indian prime minister in Britain. Uh, So, you know, so these are issues on which we have also taken tough stances. So, as I said, there is always going to be certain issues where you think that the overriding priority of norms and values is very high. There will be other issues in which there will be expediency combined with a consideration for norms. There will be third issues on which you will
1: say that, you know, hypocrisy is the normal currency of international politics.
0: All countries do it and that's what we've just got to put up with it and keep moving on.
1: Would you agree with that Swastani that this organized hypocrisy is, in a sense, I mean expected when it's all about pursuing your own national interests? And how would you look at India's history when it comes to intervening? Obviously 1971 stands out as, as one of uh, probably one uh, moment in history where everybody agrees it was perhaps justified. So how would you look at, you see some consistency at least where India has felt it had to intervene when the threshold was very high, Uh, but then how would you contrast that with more recent, for instance, comments you see on a routine basis, especially aimed at our neighborhood?
2: I think there has to be some kind of a distinction made between comments and actual policy. Um, Because policy is meant to be carefully considered, is meant to look at uh, the the pros and cons of uh, what a certain step in terms of intervention, in terms of interference, would actually mean. Um, Unfortunately, talk has become very cheap. Uh, So when a Canadian prime minister says something about India's internal affairs or when the Ministry of External Affairs here puts out a statement uh, about uh, incidents, say, inside Pakistan or uh, other other areas, um, you actually find that they aren't act- taken extremely seriously. What is taken seriously is what goes into policy. Um, for example, with the Citizenship Amendment Act, the government... Uh, Uh, May or may not have completely thought it through, but when it said that essentially they were uh, commenting on the status of minorities in three different countries uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh uh, they may have been prepared for a backlash from Pakistan and and quite ready to take that. uh, But they weren't prepared for the kind of uh, reaction it would have in Bangladesh and in Afghanistan for the first time. Uh, regardless of who was behind those uh, protests, we actually saw protests in Afghanistan against India. We actually saw massive protests in Bangladesh uh, against India on the issue of the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, Some would say that uh, what we're seeing then is uh, interference going both ways. Um, But the, the truth is, I think that distinction has got lost somewhere. That when somebody makes a statement, of course it is interference. Of course it's irritating. Of course it's something... Uh, that, uh, that uh, there must be a perfunctory sort of response to. But at the end of the day, the statements are not the issue. The issue is when there's actual intervention, when there's actual interference uh, in India's affairs or uh, in other countries' um, uh, as, as affairs, those have to be seen in a, from a much more serious prism uh, because those are the ones that make a difference. When uh, the US, for example, uh, puts Saudi Arabia on its list of countries of particular concern when it comes to religious freedom, and they've done it for years and years, uh, it's, it's not seen as uh, as, as, uh, as a real um, assertion of policy. What is seen as assertions of policy is when on the basis of that Religious Freedom Act, uh, you take actions against various countries, um, whether it has been Iran, whether it has been Pakistan, Burma, uh, and the rest, or whether it was in India, where. Uh, The U.S. used its International Religious Freedom Act to deny uh, then Gujarat chief minister, now Prime Minister Modi, uh, a visa to India. And that constituted interference. It was something the Indian government protested. um, And eventually, uh, you know, only after Prime Minister Modi became the prime minister that uh, the the visa ban was lifted. Um, So I think we have to make that distinction, because Srinath is absolutely right. You know, there is a sort of post colonial backlash as a part of it there is a an assertion of sovereignty that is part of stopping other countries from uh, interfering in your own country but is commentary the same as interference uh, you know interestingly last week this was a question that i had put to external affairs minister uh, jay shankar when i asked him why is it okay for india to comment on the uh, on uh, uh, you know uh, the uh, internal matters if you like of another country but india reacts pretty strongly to those that are made about india and his point was that look if criticism is ill informed uh, then it is my duty to go out there um uh and 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 uh, ensure that the criticism is addressed with information. Uh, that's how he responded to a question about the kind of criticism we've seen, and it's not just from Canada on say the farmers' protest, but in the last year. Uh, we have seen the U.S. Congress, the European Parliament, the UK Parliament, uh, and several others comment on everything from the Article Three Seventy moves and uh, the strictures on people in Jammu and Kashmir to uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act, even to uh, other issues over the past year, like um, uh, the you know the treatment of the Tablighi Jamaat when it came to the coronavirus crisis. Uh, we've seen statements made by the United Nations. We even have the Human Rights a uh, commissioner wanting to be implicated in a case in India uh, over the Citizenship Amendment Act. So you're seeing various, uh, various kinds of assertion, if you like, of what we see or India sees as interference, but it is necessary to, to differentiate between those that are essentially comments uh, that perhaps one can build a thicker skin for uh, and those that actually change policy Towards India, for example, you know, writing it into uh, a U.S. Congress legislation, as an attempt was made last year, that would then lead to other kind of strictures against India. Those are the ones that one must take much more seriously. But Swazni, is India's skin getting
1: thinner, and is that a trend that you see with this current government, uh, or is it always been the case that India has had a thin skin? You did mention, I think, a very important point: the difference between making statements and policy, but in responses to statements that we feel peeved about, it does begin to impinge policy, doesn't it? Whether, for example, with Canada, we are deciding not to attend meetings on COVID. Or more recently, I think with Malaysia, you had this whole incident with palm oil exports, allegedly being stopped after India was upset uh, about uh, Mahathir's uh, criticism of India's policies in Kashmir. So obviously, there's a link between the two. And do you think that India's skin is getting thinner? And is it natural, perhaps, that we see see that with China all the time as well, that when countries feel their position in the world is becoming more prominent, that they have a right to have a thinner skin?
2: That is an important point. Um, Are we getting more thin-skinned is one question. The other is, are we actually reacting in the same way uh, to criticisms, uh, similar criticisms from different people. So, as you pointed out with Malaysia, there was uh, a, there was a, a, a sort of stoppage on the import of palm oil as a kind of quote unquote punishment. With um, uh, we saw the same with Turkey when its president raised the issues of Jammu and Kashmir at the United Nations. With Pakistan, it's a constant uh, sort of pushback from India when it comes to any comments about internal affairs. On the other hand, uh, we saw those uh, issues being raised by other countries, uh, for example, uh, the United States or United Kingdom. Um, Even, I think, uh, some uh, statements of concern were made by German Chancellor Angela Merkel when she came to India right when she was in Delhi. Um, and we didn't see a similar kind of response uh, uh, from India. Mr. Trump was invited uh, to, uh, to, to India for that uh, big rally in Gujarat. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Johnson has been invited as the chief guest for India's Republic Day. So uh, the, the question is as much, you know, about what are the state of bilateral ties with those countries in any case. So I think we have a thinner skin when relations aren't as, uh, as much on a firm footing. And um, we choose to ignore, for example, when, um, uh, when relations are actually much better. You know, in the last year, uh, look at some of the comments Mr. Trump has made. He uh, suggested that Mr. Modi had uh, called him over the China uh, standoff at the line of actual control. He had offered mediation, a no no normally in Indian terms. Last year, he sat down next to the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan and again suggested uh, mediation in Jammu and Kashmir, even suggested that Prime Minister Modi had asked him for it. Um, you know, uh, and that was something that then became a big issue in the Indian Parliament and the government had to deny it. What I'm trying to say is that despite uh, comments being made by certain countries, India has not reacted very strongly. Um, and uh, in, in, in the case of uh, certain countries, uh, uh, we have. So I think it's as much a commentary on the state of bilateral ties as it is on, uh, on how sensitive we are.
1: Srinath, looking at India's approach to its immediate neighbourhood, is there a case to be made that in a strange sense, uh, even with all these changes, uh, that India is perhaps becoming less interventionist in terms of, say, for example, wanting favourable governments uh, in its immediate neighbourhood, do you see a change in how uh, India is approaching that aspect of how it deals uh, in its vicinity?
0: Historically, India has always been quite interventionist in the neighborhood, right? And this is not just at the level of making comments, as Suhasini is saying. You know, this is more at the level of policy, at the kinds of policy directions that we wanted these countries to take, and at times even uh, with governments. And of course, we know that we've even intervened militarily uh, in in the neighborhood, right? So so India is very interventionist when it comes to its neighborhood. And it's a typical sort of attitude of a country which is much larger compared to all other uh, smaller countries in the region and that we throw our weight around. Uh, Have things changed? Uh, I think, yes, you can argue that things have changed to a certain extent, but that is primarily because these countries have now found, particularly with China's increasing footprint in the region, other kinds of counterweights against india's uh, sort of you know attempts to be overbearing uh, as far as their internal affairs are concerned and that's something that i think we have taken cognizance of and of course in each case you know you, there is also a question of saying not how much do we really want to push Because so we wait for outcomes to happen right so there is a cyclicality to changes there are times when regimes will be much more favorable to india whereas other times they may want to maintain a bit of a distance and so on so i think you know some of that has Uh, definitely kind of happened. But that has happened not because of any internal changes within how India approaches the region, as much as broader changes in the region, particularly with China's increasing footprint.
1: And Sreena, a question that I'd like both of you to finally uh, weigh in on. Uh, It seems that ultimately uh, interference or intervention, whatever you want to call it, is driven by a cold hard logic of interest, less by values. Is there a case to be made for you both Uh, for India to have a more value-based element uh, in the way it speaks out for issues around the world. I think one glaring issue that I often think of recently is as much as India speaks about, for instance, the state of minorities in Pakistan, it has never commented about something as significant as a million people being interned in Xinjiang in China. Uh, So is it the case that we have to live with this sense of uh, organized hypocrisy, as somebody called it? And do you think there's a case to be made, actually, for more value-based uh, approach, at least, to how India speaks out on some issues and not on others?
0: See, I think it is better to sort of maintain a much more realistic stance on these kinds of things for two reasons. First, you know, there are different things that you want out of relationships with different countries. Uh, and then to that extent, I think the, the question of what is it that the state of relationship is and where do you want it to go becomes quite important. I mean, for instance, you take the example of, say, the Russian you know, military intervention in Crimea. Indian government's response was that is, we are not going to kind of take a very tough position for good reasons, because we have a certain kind of a relationship with Russia, which we want to keep in play. And that becomes much more important. The second thing, if I may say, frankly, is that, you know, it, it's a bit off the question of people who are living in glass houses, want not wanting to throw stones at others. Right. <laughs> there are enough hostages of fortune as far as our own internal affairs are concerned. Uh, if anything, under this current government, we've seen that the direction in which domestic policy is taken has given, opened up us to many more criticism, not by way of any kind of universal standards, but the standards of our own constitution and so on. Right. So I think it's therefore only prudent that our diplomats stick to what is most sort of real politic interest of the country and try and advance it rather than, you know, getting into internal affairs of other countries.
1: Isn't that a fair point, Swasani? People in glass houses can't throw stones. And would you say at least looking at India's recent actions, uh, Kashmir stands out that, uh, frankly, India doesn't really have a great wicket to stand on as someone who wants to speak out for democratic values uh, as much as India would like to think it can.
2: Well, uh, honestly, I would uh, agree with uh, Srinath that there's a need for realism, but I disagree in the sense of um, uh, of it being a kind of you know equivalence that the only way that you can speak out on issues as if your uh, slate is completely clean, Um, Because the the truth is that uh, it is about power projection. At the end of the day, India has not spoken out on Xinjiang and the treatment of Uyghurs there. Uh, But India made very, very strong comments about uh, the lack of democracy, for example, a few years ago in the Maldives. Uh, India regularly makes statements about the treatment of uh, uh, people in the uh, Tamil majority areas of Sri Lanka. Um, the foreign minister, when he visited there, uh, 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 made the statement uh, right after a meeting with the Sri Lankan leadership. Um, as foreign secretary, in fact, Mr. Jaishankar had traveled to Kathmandu to ensure that, um, or to plead with the government not to push through its constitution, which India felt was unfair uh, right. to the Madhesi population. These are all examples where India has a very vocally Um, uh, you know, protested with its neighbors, uh, apart from the Citizenship Amendment Act and and other such such examples, uh, without it necessarily being a a reflection of how, you know, those state of rights are inside India. I think eventually it is about uh, power projection. If you feel you can, you will uh, comment. And if the other side pushes back, then it's a question of whether you can put up with that. Or, uh, or you will, um, uh, you know, soften your stance if, uh, in, the, in the sort of manner we have seen in, so, in some of these cases that I just mentioned. I don't think that eventually um, even the United States or the United Kingdom or any of these countries that are speaking out about the affairs of other countries or the European Union really have uh, as much of a leg to stand on internally as well. Uh, the point is that most countries don't uh, point to the, the, uh, if you like, the dichotomy of the U.S. speaking about minority rights outside, even as I can't breathe and Black Lives Matter protests were being very, very brutally put down inside American cities. Um, so I think that uh, it's, it's eventually a question of if you have the power to speak, you, you probably will. And uh, then it's a question of whether the other side pushes back.
1: Well, fascinating discussion, Suhasini and Srinath. Thank you for disentangling, I think, a really interesting, a many-layered issue. I think it's getting even more prominent in international affairs and in the stories that we report. Thank you so much, Suhasini, Haider, and Srinath Raghavan for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Anir.